Live from Chatterbox Sports Studios, it's Off the Bench with Tom Brenneman. All right, good morning, good morning, and good morning. Here we are on that proverbial hump day today. Casey McAllister, Paul Fritchner, good morning, gentlemen. You guys look like you're still kind of scrambling around for today like I am. Is everything okay? How are you both? Um... We're well, doing that's okay. not a good quick answer. <laughs> no, uh, we're doing we're doing all right. Uh, I think your laptop is playing our show. It is okay. All right, my bad. There we, there go. we go. Okay, forgive me. I like that music so much. I just keep it going all the time. And I try to <laughs> like, most people have that. Uh, what do they call it? White noise. Yeah. I yeah. just play that music reel over and over. You right, fall let's asleep. Start that? again. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing great. Great. Yeah. It's a Wednesday. It's hump day. We've got a great interview on tap today, Bronson Arroyo. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, really I'm excited about having Bronson Arroyo as our big interview. We do this each and every Wednesday. And, I mean, we've had guys like Anthony Munoz and Chris Collinsworth and Sean Casey and Barry Alvarez and on and on and on, Marty Brenneman, who, by the way, will be coming up in about uh, 10 minutes to talk about what's going on in the World Series. How about that game last night? That crowd. Oh, I mean... If you're just a sports fan uh, and you could hang out anywhere over the next three or four days, it would be at Citizens Bank Park because that place was rocking. Yeah, all those home runs just back to back to back to back. It just and, and the way that Philly was hitting them, I thought it was an interesting point that kept getting brought up all night about whether Lance McCullers was tipping his pitches yep. or not. And there was a good breakdown on Twitter, the way he was lifting his leg, the way he was just – some little intricacies that maybe that was what Bryce uh, talked about in the on-deck circle that led to that next home run. So, uh, yeah, I thought last night's game was a ton of fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, if you missed it, Philadelphia hit five home runs in that game uh, against Lance McCullers Jr. Seven nothing shutout win for the Phillies. So they take a two games to one advantage uh, in the World Series. Game four will be tonight. Game five tomorrow night in Philadelphia and if they have to go beyond that they go back to Houston on Saturday and Sunday there will still be as we mentioned yesterday that travel day on uh, Friday the college football playoff rankings came out yesterday for the first time they wait till about halfway through the year then they release the rankings so last night they come out I was not surprised maybe you were I was not surprised at Tennessee's number one. I think when you look at their body of work, whom they've played, uh, the teams they've beaten, primarily Alabama, in that phenomenal game a couple of weeks ago in Knoxville, I think they've earned the right to be number one. I think Ohio State has certainly earned the right to be number two, although their strength of schedule, as we know, has not been good. I was surprised at the lack of strength of schedule by Georgia. It was explained last night, Georgia, by the way, number three, and Tennessee and Georgia play one another this weekend. Uh, that's down in Athens. Georgia's strength of schedule is 75th in college football. Uh, and playing in the SEC, that's not normally the case. But the point was made last night by, uh, I think, Joey Galloway uh, on that college football playoff ranking show that – you know, in any given year in the SEC, you have certain crossover games and teams you have to play. This has been a year where Georgia is not playing during the regular season. 
They're not playing LSU. They're not playing Alabama. They haven't played some of the teams that would bring that strength of schedule up. The number four team, I was stunned, and that was Clemson. We pointed out yesterday, fellas, you know, if you're buying into the ACC, we talked yesterday that Clemson has beaten the likes of Wake Forest, and they're in the top 25. NC State, they're in the top 25 of the rankings. Um, they beat Syracuse, uh, who then got just blistered by Notre Dame at home. So I don't know how good they are. But they were ranked ahead of Michigan. And this is where it comes back to your strength of schedule again. I think anybody that has watched Clemson or anyone that has watched Michigan, I don't know to the eye test how you don't say that Michigan is clearly a better team. And believe me, it pains me to speak glowingly about Michigan uh, in any form or fashion. But were you guys not stunned? I was stunned that Clemson is ranked in front of Michigan. Michigan is five. We'll get to six and seven here in a minute. But Michigan is behind Clemson, who made a quarterback change to win a game over Syracuse. Surprised? Initially, I was pretty surprised. But then after about five minutes and I sat back and I thought about it, I'm not all that shocked only because I think what the committee is setting this up to do is for one of Ohio State and Michigan to get in If Michigan beats Ohio State when they play each other, then Michigan's in and Ohio State might be out. So I think that's the way they're setting it up. The initial rankings do look a little funky because, like you and we all agreed on our top four yesterday, I thought Michigan deserved to be in. But right now I don't think it really matters because if Michigan beats Ohio State, then they'll be in. So that's, to me, how that's setting up. Um, then you get to six and seven. Now... I have never been a big fan of the Big 12. Uh, you see a lot of high-scoring games and that kind of thing. Uh, but TCU is ranked 7th. That is behind Alabama, of course, who has a loss to Tennessee. TCU's undefeated. Now, you know, you play who you play. And they did something that's only been done three times in the last 20 years. And that's beat four ranked teams in one calendar month. Um, I don't know what else TCU has to do. Uh, you know, look, you're going to have to start rooting for this team to lose a game. Alabama, you know, Ohio State or Michigan, one of them's going to lose a game. You got to win out. And perhaps if TCU wins out, TCU gets in. But, uh, boy, I, I was just really surprised at Alabama, who has not played a tough schedule. And I think it is safe to say that if Quinn Ewers, uh, the opening game of the season against Texas, who throws for 150 yards in the first half against Alabama, but he gets knocked out with an injury. I know what it could have should have were playing here. But if Ewers plays in that game, I think Alabama gets beat by Texas. But, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, at any rate, Marty Brenneman ready to go? Yes, he is. He's dialed in. He's the dialed Hall of in. Famer. I mean, he set record numbers. On the big interview last week, right, Paul? He did. Huge numbers yes. for Marty Brenneman. Yep. And he joins us from his palatial estate somewhere in the hills of Anderson Township. 
that's a good look you got going on there today with the background and the, and the, uh, the, the, the zip up and the whole nine yards. How are you doing on this beautiful Wednesday? It's the same damn background I always have unless I'm in Carolina. Well, I I mean, know, really. For some reason, it looks like you have it lit better. Maybe that's the sun coming in. I don't know what it is. It just looks a little better. Well, I appreciate that. Let me, can I make a point before we get started? Of course. You li- you need to listen to Paul more about this. I know you lost your mind because Michigan is behind Clemson. I understand that. Yep. Uh, I, I know you, you're, you've got a severe case of angst because TCU has beaten four ranked teams and they're still, I think, number seven. You know, it is what it is. I felt the same way you did last year about UC. I anguish every week wondering if they were going to, um, you know, make the Final Four, which they did. And they, even though they didn't win, they certainly acquitted themselves rather well. You just got to wait. We got, what, three more uh, of these stupid shows on ESPN before they determine what the final rankings are? Is that they right? They do. They do. They do. Yeah. I'm just saying that when you initially look at the body of work for all these teams. And I think the guy, I'm assuming that Boo Corrigan is the son of Gene Corrigan. Is that right? Do you know? You know, I I don't know that for certain time, but I got to feel like he is. Yeah. 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 I would think so. He's ahead of the college. Go ahead. I knew his dad very well. Um, And if he's as much of a classy act as his dad was, then he's going to be fine. Yeah, he's the guy that's ahead of the college football playoff committee. He's the athletic director at North Carolina State. And he's a guy that's got to sit in the hot seat uh, for the next he does. six, seven weeks because they do this show every single Tuesday night. They come out with new rankings. He's obligated to come on the show and answer questions uh, from that entire panel they have up there, Herb Street and Joey Galloway and David Pollard. Who else is on there? I don't know. But uh, yeah. Reese, Reese Davis, I think. And so, uh, Reese Davis. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, he handled himself well last night. Um, and, and he talked about you know, why one team was ranked ahead of another team and so on and so forth. So he's got that going on the next number of weeks. I yes, want to ask correct. you, however, a little bit about um, the World Series. And, you know, Bronson Arroyo is our big interview coming up a little bit later on today. And I'm right. going to ask him a little bit about momentum and reflecting back, and you remember it well, to that 2012 playoff where the Reds won the first two games in a best of five out in San Francisco. They had not lost three games in a row all year long at home. Of course, they did. And we remember Hunter Pence jumping up and down in the dugout and all that kind of thing. I just wonder, Dad, um, and and look, that could all change uh, in a heartbeat tonight. I understand that. It's only two games to one. But this Phillies team just has a look about them. They just have the look about them that, that they are going to win this thing. Are you sensing that at all or no? Yeah, I think I, – and, I, you know, I don't know that it's true every year, but there are years when uh, more often than not when a team gets mm-hmm. to where the Phillies are and nobody, nobody picked them to be there. But things occur. I know you and I referenced a few weeks ago, I think, that Cardinal Club back in the early part of this century when – I think they finished the regular season 81 and 81 and got in by the skin of their teeth and ended up being world champions. Um, I just think there are certain teams that seem to carry with them a sense, uh, an aura of success that you don't have that same feel for with, with the team they're playing or teams that uh, were eliminated early uh, in the postseason scheme of things. But 
I mean, when when you come out and I, Lance McCullers is no chop liver now, um, and you had four home, five home runs in one game, and I think four of them were all for him, and maybe all five. I'm not sure, but they just have a certain look about them. The kid that pitched last night, Ranger Suarez, was outstanding for five innings. Um, and and you're right, things can change with a, a Houston win tonight. And I think if there if you could label a game, a single game, and I know it's hard to do. Uh, over the course of a baseball season, you could label a single game an absolute must win for the Astros. It is without question tonight, without any question. You know, I I don't know how privy uh, you were or cared to be, quite frankly. Um, Baseball is no different than any other sport or in any other business. You're always looking for that one little thing, that edge that can, can, can spell winning, can spell losing. McCullers has pitched all year long, and like you said, he's been a good pitcher. He pitched in the postseason before this World Series appearance last night, and much was made of him tipping pitches. Do you think that some teams and or players are better at being able to find out something like that? Because, I mean, why didn't it rear its ugly head before now? All of a sudden, this is a huge deal when he's pitching in the World Series. I understand it's more magnified, but do you think it's possible – the Phillies were able to dissect something that maybe everybody else missed. Have you seen the video? I've seen the video. The two videos side by side. Yeah. There is no question he tipped his pitches because when he would go into his windup and I, I didn't read or listen to it because it was very early this morning. I didn't want to wake anybody up. He would come here when he started to raise his leg and the, and the other video had him coming this high up above his head. There was no question that he was tipping his pitches. Now, what this meant, what pitch it was here as opposed to what was here, I don't know. But, uh, you know, when when they talk about, uh, uh, what's his name, Bryce Harper going back and telling the kid a uh, very quick meeting before he went to the play, what's his name, Pond or Bone or whatever it is, yeah. third baseman, and then he hits a line drive home run to left. I think there's something to that. And and I think there are certain people that have an innate ability to concentrate on a pitcher, and certainly players have plenty of time to do that when they're in the dugout before they go on the field or when they come to the plate. Um, they Certain people can pick that stuff up. And and I there's no question in my mind that the conversation dealt with the fact that he had a different motion for one pitch as opposed to another. All right, well, if that's true, and I agree with you that's true. There has to be some fault on those sitting in the Astros dugout. No question. No question. And I don't understand if a Bryce Harper can pick up uh, a a difference in motion that will uh, predict what the next pitch is coming to the plate on, then I cannot imagine in my wildest dreams why in the world that there wasn't someone in that Astros dugout that could say, hey, hold the phone and go to Dusty and say, we got a problem out here because he's tipping his pitches. I could not agree with you more because there has to be somebody in that Houston dugout who fashions himself as a guy that if there's any inconsistency in a pitcher's motion, he ought to be able to pick that up. I have not seen any comment come out of the Astros clubhouse, and certainly whatever inside information Bryce Harper passed on to his teammate, uh, they're not going to reveal what that was. And, and they're going to put the onus now on the back of Houston in the event the Astros can win a game or two and extend this thing and get it back to Houston. 
uh, to before McCullers goes back to the mound to figure out what that problem is. You know Dusty Baker very well. He is a friend of yours. I know you think the world yes. of him, and you're rooting for him to uh, finally am. get off the schneid to win a World Series. Um, when, when you sit there and you think about what he might be thinking about, I, I am convinced, and maybe you will totally disagree, I think this means the world to him. I, I, I don't think that he is going to not make the Hall of Fame as a manager. If he doesn't win a World Series, he's earned the right to be in the Hall of Fame as a manager. I think everybody agrees with that. But I think Correct. there's a part of him deep in his soul that will fill an enormous void if he can't win this thing. You agree with that? I agree with you 100%. And I really don't feel, and I, again, I'll go further than that, I, I don't think that he right, gives a rightful damn what his detractors say if they want to be stupid enough to say, well, he doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame because he's never won a World Series. That's the biggest bunch of crap I've ever heard. Um, you're right. His his body of work is so overwhelming that whether he wins this series or not, he's going to one day have a plaque in Cooperstown. But I think the competitiveness of this man, and he has incredible competitiveness, he will have a void in his heart for the rest of his life if he cannot win a World Series. I really, truly believe that. Do you think that they bring him back if they don't win a World Series? Oh, boy. I say that, you know, that's a good question because there's been all kinds of dissension uh, internally involving yeah. Jim Crane, the owner, and the general manager, and, and Dusty. You know, Dusty, he may be the only manager in baseball that uses less analytics uh, than anybody else in the game in that position. And he's been able to get away with it, but at the expense of, of I guess, from everything I hear, big disagreements that go on entirely during the season between he and the general manager over the way things should be done. And more often than not, Dusty will do things his way. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are those who would have said when this series began that if they fail, that one, uh, possibly both, but only one in all likelihood will be looking for a job. And that would be the GM and that would be Dusty. Um, Jim Crane, obviously, is the owner. He's got to make a decision. And, and you know, he, I think he would surprise everybody if he brought both of them back. But, I mean, I, I, I cannot imagine losing this series and, and, and the fans be uh, happy with the fact that Dusty was let go because I think you have to go back to when he ascended to the position, when he was hired to manage the chaos that existed in that franchise over cheating and, and things of that nature. And if, they, if God ever put a man on this earth that was the right man to calm things down there and lead them forward, it was Dusty Baker. So I think uh, I know how bad Houston wants to win. Every team, when they get where they are right now, wants to win a World Series. But I think it would be criminal if they let Dusty Baker go just because he was unable to win the series. I've never asked you this, but I'm curious to your answer. Do you think baseball should have stepped in and not awarded a World Series winner that season that Houston did win it, knowing what we know now? Absolutely, without any question. And like so many other things that go on in this game, led by this guy, uh, they could not pull the trigger. And I think about what the NCAA does. 
whether it be football, which you've never had a problem with, it's always been basketball or seemingly so, I don't think they would have hesitated. And they have it in the past. And it was almost uh, without any internal discussion that went on and on and on. They made a decision. And, and that was that. I'm, I'm shocked and I was disappointed that baseball didn't have the guts to pull the plug on them. I really was. Are you surprised with that in mind that guys like A.J. Hinch and uh, Alex Cora have been given another chance to come back and manage again, even though they were right in the middle of all of it? And Carlos Beltran got let go before he even started managing the New York Mets. And hasn't gotten the job back yet. No. Um, I... I uh, yeah, I was. But if I had to lean toward one as opposed to the other, I would have. I, I think I would have been more likely to give A.J. Hinch another chance than I would have Joey Cora because I think Joey Cora was smack in the middle of it, I think, first in Houston and then later on in Boston. All right, so um, college basketball is getting ready to start up. Your North Carolina Tar Heels are preseason number one in the country. Are no they heels. the best team in the country? Uh, yeah, I say they are, I, and for a lot of reasons. I mean, they got all their people back uh, except uh, for uh, Brady Manick, and they replaced him with the kid out of Northwestern, Pete Nance, who apparently has fitted in has fit in perfectly uh, in filling the role. Nobody will ever replace Manick in the job he did, uh, but Pete Pete Nance is a great guy, and then the other four guys are all back. Plus, in fact, they've got more depth. They've got more quality players coming off that bench now uh, than I certainly last year. And I think even uh, beyond that in the last years that uh, Roy Williams coached that team. So I think if there's a team that deserves to be number one, um, I think Carolina certainly does deserve that. With great prejudice, I might add. Well, our good friend over here, one of our good friends, Paul Fritchner, is losing his mind. <laughs> his uh, alma mater, Xavier, has brought back uh, Sean Miller to be the head coach. And, uh, Paul, you were uh, at Madison Square Garden about yeah. a week and a half ago for the Big East Basketball Media Day. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited for this season. I think, especially in this area, I, I think that uh, Cincinnati's trending in the right direction. NKU was picked at the top of the Horizon League. Xavier is going to be relevant again. They've been picked pretty much a consensus top four team in the Big East. So I think things are tr and, and look at Dayton too. They're a, they're a top 25 yep. team, uh, and deservedly so, especially for Dayton after what happened in 2020 with the the opportunity that yeah. they were so so cruelly taken away from after after uh, Obi Toppin and everybody didn't get a chance to play in the NCAA tournament so you know college, Cincinnati's a college hoops town in, in this time of the year no NBA team around this area really so uh, it's it's exciting and uh, yeah we're we're less than a week away Xavier plays an exhibition tonight and uh, things get rolling on Monday it gets to a question. Very similar to the one we were talking about a second ago, and I don't mean to be controversial here, but I think this is a fair question. You just alluded a second ago, Dad, about uh, Alex Cora and uh, – know AJ, where you're going with this. That's right, and A.J. Hinch. Um, I know, you know where you're going. They got another chance, and you made reference yep. to college basketball and the NCAA. Um, it seems to me – Tell me if you agree or disagree. It seems to me that the NCAA has fallen into a serious, serious habit 
of going after the quote-unquote, I'm not going to say little guy, but they are quite hesitant to go after the big guys. And I'm talking about the big guys in Arizona who are running that operation. I'm talking about what was going on at Kansas uh, and everything there. And there are others. It seems to me they're looking the other way on some of this stuff. Am I wrong about that? You're absolutely 100% correct. And my feeling on that is they want to put it, they want to eliminate paying players or whatever illegality a coach and his staff have been charged with. Uh, they got to go after the head man. Uh, they got to go after the head man hard. And if they can prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was smack in the middle of cheating, they should be banned from coaching at the NCAA level for life. And you want to talk about putting something, put, putting it away for good? When you, you stand the chance of losing your job, uh, but I agree with you. NCAA cannot deny that they have yet to wherever it might be. It might be Arizona, it might be Kansas, wherever it might be. They have yet to throw the book at a coach. And the bigger he is, the less likelihood. Now, look with Chris Mack. They got Chris Mack. Uh, Chris Mack, I think, is a good coach. Um, Chris Mack was involved in some problem down there. Um, and, and, and they were not quick to dispatch him, whether they put enough pressure on, uh, L to get rid of him. I don't know, but the fact of the matter is he's gone. Now, had that been, uh, one of the big names in the game, not a chance that would have happened. Not one single chance. And they can say all they want to, that they are fair, but until the day comes when they can prove beyond any, anything that a head coach was at the forefront of the cheating that was going on at XU, or not not Xavier, but yeah, right. using whatever university it might be, uh, then you got to say you're done. You know, you go sell encyclopedias or something because you're done with this. And I think that's the only way you can stop it. But I don't think you'll – and the NCAA is a joke. Are you kidding me? It's an absolute joke. Uh, and I say that because I worked, you know, at, at the tournaments that I worked for all those years and – and, and listen to some of the stuff that went down. Uh, there's no question to me it's the most useless organization on the face of this earth. <laughs> All right. Um, we have Bronson Arroyo coming up today. And I'm curious, right. uh, of all the players that have come through the Reds organization in your 46, 47 years here with the franchise, um, was there a more likable guy than that guy? No. Uh-uh. Uh, other than maybe Sean Casey. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, I think I think they would be the big two in the last 25 years, 30 years. Um, he, he's just a good guy. He, you know, there's no pretense about him. He is what he is. Um, he's, I never have seen him cross with anybody. Um, and for a guy who... <clears throat> At one time, felt like being traded from Boston to Cincinnati was one of the low points in his career. Uh, the affection that developed between he and this city and he and this organization um, is just uh, amazing. And it's a credit to him as a person. I'll tell you the greatest story of all. And I'm not saying this because I'm involved. But, you know, Rick Stowe heads up the, the clubhouse um, and and. Uh, there have been, to my knowledge, two shirts that have been awarded to individuals uh, because of 
a lot of different positive things uh, that that the clubhouse boys, clubhouse guys wear uh, every day during the season. They have their, I don't know whether they have their names on them or not, but they're distinctive white shirts that they work in. Uh, The two people that I'm aware of were myself and Bronson Arroyo. And, and I don't, you know, to do it for a player, uh, it was so justified and, and, and so welcomed and so appreciated by him. Um, I just think it's, you know, they'll, they'll induct him into the Reds Hall of Fame next year, and it will be an overwhelmingly happy night and an overwhelmingly successful night because there's no doubt that he was a tremendous fan favorite here. All right, Dad, we thank you as always for your time and your insight on multiple topics. How about so the I- NCAA? Well, like I said, you're in. I mean, you've been there. I mean, look, you've been there. You, you called all yeah. those NCAA tournament games. You called college basketball seemingly forever and a day. You've been there much more limited around college basketball. I've been there. And I mean, you sit around and, and if you're lucky enough to be around some of the people that are involved, um, you, you start looking around and say, wait a minute, why that guy and why not that guy? And you hear Correct. some of the stuff that comes out of them. I remember sitting next to a guy high up, nameless, on a plane uh, and getting into a discussion on Bob Huggins. And if they could have proven anything on Huggins, they'd have thrown the book at him. But they couldn't have proven yeah, they, anything. They have a, then I think they have vendettas sometime. I really, yeah. truly do. There's no but doubt. But the thing, you know, let me tell you, but down the road now, I know you got to go, but in, in future weeks, it's going to be my goal to say something so outrageous that you will pull that famous move you pull when Tracy's on. And that's to drop your head and put your hand over your forehead <laughs> and just do that. Well, I mean, that's Tracy and I talked about that the other day. I said, that is the key to one of those comments that bounce off 17 walls before it finally comes to rest. So well, he'll be back we'll, with uh, us tomorrow. We'll I don't know if you saw him yesterday, but you know, he's on his second vacation in the last three weeks. He was down in Mexico I know before. Now he's along the yeah. west coast of Florida. He is blaming his wife, Danae, for once again putting down tens of thousands of dollars on a place that he refers to as a dump. He is? Yeah. I mean, he said the house they got yesterday, oh, and he said that I got all kinds of family coming in, and uh, we could see the, you know, see the golf in the background. Uh, and he said it is not up to his standards in any form or fashion. It's, it's like 10,000 square feet, apparently, this house. Uh, you know, it looked very nice, the shot we had of him yesterday, but he, he's not happy. You know, he's got a lot of money. You know that, don't you? Well, he tells us that. A lot of money. <laughs> he really, truly does. You might bring that up and say that I said that. Right, well, we might run because that clip. We might run that clip. We now, I'm going to be – yeah, please do, because I think if he says he doesn't, then he needs to make his peace with the Almighty. Well, you are going to be joining us next week. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're going to be attempting to join us next week from the high seas of the Atlantic. Is that correct? I tell you what. uh, No, uh, that's not true. The high seas of the Caribbean. (laughs) That's That's not not the Atlantic. That's the Atlantic Ocean. Wait a minute. It's a hell of a lot of difference between the Atlantic Ocean and the Caribbean, believe me. Um, In color. In temperature, okay. the whole nine yards. I'm, okay, no, fine. I'm an expert. Uh, but I, you might tell Casey that I may just call in the day before and see how successful we are if I can just punch up privately 
Um, yeah, absolutely. Like, talk to him, and I'll, I'll call you, and we'll get we'll try and figure something out. I love to do it from the ship, and yeah. if I it, and by all possible, then that's where we'll do it next Wednesday. Is that a five star ship or is that a six star ship? It'd probably be five and seven eighths, I think. Yeah, it's. Well, I, it's I never heard of a six until Tracy came along. I've heard well, of five star resorts. Why. I'm not. I'm not even addressing what he said. I heard that six star crap when he had, when he dropped that on you. That's not going to happen here. Believe me, that won't happen. And okay. and I will carry uh, your hellos to you from uh, people like Jack Billingham and uh, Dimitri Young. Oh, yeah. Um, and Jim Maloney. Uh, they'll all say hello to you. Absolutely. We'll tell them I said the okay. same. All right. All right. I yeah, surely will. You. I'll talk to you. I'll talk love to you. Love you too, pal. All right. Okay. All take right. care. All Bye-bye. right. There you have it. Marty Brenneman right there getting after it. Next week. After your guys, Paul, at the NCAA. Those are your guys. Oh, no. The NCAA? No. No, no. Not the NCAA. Boy, I mean, he took on today Rob Manfred. Yeah. <laughs> right. He took on the NCAA. Um, am I forgetting somebody? Uh, in that I, I whole mean, exchange? I mean, that probably checks a couple big boxes. Couple, I'd say it's a couple <laughs> big boxes. Right, right, right. All right. Um, we got Bronson Arroyo coming up in about 10 minutes. Uh, we're going to come back and pick up some of this uh, college football stuff. By the way, there is a leader in the Mid-American Conference Maction began last night. Oh, you oh, yeah. Buffalo was undefeated, came rolling into Peden Stadium in Athens, Ohio. Beautiful night in A-Town. And Curtis Rourke, outside of that pick six, his quarterback at OU is having an unbelievable year. And they took it to Buffalo last night, put 45 on them last night. And the Bobcats sit atop. The Mac East. Can they win out and go to the Mid-American Conference title game? So here's my question. If they go to the Mac title game, are we all going? You know, I think we should go. I think they play that game every year, I think, at Ford Field. Yes. Yes, which is great because you're inside. That's an incredible building. All the years I did the NFL, I know that's a little older than maybe the one in Minnesota and certainly the one in Dallas and the one in Phoenix and all that. But, I mean, that building is still – you guys been in that building? I've not. Nope. Boy, I tell you what, man. That is a great place to watch a football game. Do you know, like, any of the uh, directors there, athletic directing, anything like that? Any, at OU. Yeah, at OU. Yes. Maybe we should try to get, like, a 30-minute show there in the stadium at some point. You know, for, if, for if, that the, title if the Mac would happens. let us – I mean, I, you know, there, there are all these kind of weird deals that when you get into games like that – Somebody owns the rights to the game. I would imagine that's ESPN, if I'm guessing off the top of my head. It's probably a pretty good guess. Um, they have the rights to the game, and sometimes they force you to go outside. We ain't going outside in Detroit. Right. I mean, I mean, just like the post game, though. We yeah. wouldn't be showing anything from yeah, the game. During the game, right. Yeah. Right. But we would react to. It'd be nice. To know it may you not be a bad honestly. idea. The Bobcats. The Bobcats. Bobcats. They're going to have a good basketball team this year, too, brother. Yeah. They're going to be good. This whole area is going to have a good year. Yeah, it is. You're right. You're right. Between UC, Xavier. Um, NKU. NKU. Dayton. Ohio U should be good. Dayton, we talked about. They're already ranked in the preseason top 25. Um, it should be really good. All right, we're going to uh, take a quick timeout. 
Uh, we'll come back, talk a little bit about this college football playoff thing uh, or whatever else comes to mind. Uh, who's on board here? We, we got hundreds, if not thousands, of watching. <laughs> Boom Shakalaka's back. I love that nickname. Boom Shakalaka. That's big time. What, what is this? Glad to hear you're taking care of Tom and allowing him some vacation. So probably, that was probably directed to Marty. Oh, okay. Oh, wait, maybe not. I don't know. Well, Marty's the one on vacation. Marty, yeah, Marty's Although on vacation. I will not be here Friday. So just as a uh, programming note, um, we are going to make our picks tomorrow. We still have Tracy Jones. We'll have Paul Doherty tomorrow. Uh, but we're going to make our picks because I'm on my way down to Fort Worth, Texas to watch the mighty TCU Horned Frogs. Tee it up. High noon. Urban Meyer and company will be there for the, the big Fox noon game, the pregame show in Fort Worth, Texas. Horned Frogs. It'll be about 72 degrees down there, sunshine. It's going to be nice. We're back in a moment. Cowboys are playing well. They hung in there without their starting quarterback. Went 4-1 and one with Cooper Rush. And... Um, Good enough to earn them that top level of um, who stinks, who's borderline stinks, who's my, borderline my, good, and who's good. They were on the top line. They were on the top line for, for good teams. I mean, they thrashed the Bears. Um, if that offense continues to stay on the incline for the Cowboys, they'll be in a good spot. They'll be in a good team for a while. Um, now the – the, uh, the other thing that was interesting about Vach is his uh, his nickname for the Washington Commanders. Yes. That I always reference them as the Wizards now. And people think I'm talking about the NBA team. It's very funny. Um, that's one thing I love about Vach. He, he, he just does not care one bit what teams are called. He doesn't care about the professionalism part of it. He's a he's a good dude. He's a good he's he a is good, good dude. Super fan. Love the guy. All right, let, let, let's resend this to Bronson. Okay. Okay. So let's have a capital S there. Okay. Let's try that. With after that first word, what do you call that underneath thing? An underscore. An underscore. Underscore, and then the number. Okay. And then the rest of it. Okay. Because okay. um he just sent me a uh, text that for some reason, I think I'm the one that, I know I'm the one that uh, screwed this up. Um, Bronson Arroyo, our big interview coming up shortly. Love some of the comments made by the hundreds, thousands of you watching, especially our buddy Sir Boy Wonder. He says the Chatterbox Sports needs to buy the rights to Ohio University Athletics. I agree. I agree. <laughs> and that he said we have to do a live show at Ford Field if, and that's if, um, Ohio University can win out and get to the title game of the Mid-American Conference. So right. there you have it. I think it'd be a great deal. All right, so Tom, here's one for you. How do you respond to ESPN's power rankings having the Browns 23rd yesterday? That well, look, they're 3-5. and five. Okay. That, would, that would be. They're three and five. Yeah. So, you know, they had not won a game in five weeks. 
Okay, but 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 I mean, but but them being twenty third, bless you, is uh, is ridiculous. I mean, just ridiculous. Um, I, I didn't look at, at some of the other teams that are ahead of them. Uh, you know, most of them, we can figure that out. But are the Bengals ranked in front of the Browns? Twelfth. The Bengals are ranked twelfth. Yeah. In the ESPN power rankings. Yeah. It looks like we have Mr. Arroyo. Is that right? Yes, we do. All right. All right. This is a uh, pleasure and an honor. There he is, Bronson Arroyo. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Can't complain. Where are you? You're down in Florida. I know your father, and, and our thoughts and prayers are with him, your dad, Gus, uh, that he's been going through some tough times <laughs> physically, and you've been down there taking care of him and, and keeping an eye on him. How's he doing? Uh, he's doing better. You know, got him out of the hospital. He's He's functional in his own house, which is what, you know, what you're looking for. I mean, being in a hospital is, or in a facility is just absolutely miserable. It's so sterile, you know? So <laughs> it was nice to get him back in his own space. And uh, I'm actually back in Cincinnati now. I've got a oh, okay. show on Saturday night here, a tribute show. So we're, we're in town for a little band practice tonight. What's, what, what's the show? Where is it? And what's it for? Uh, it's going to be, it's at the Madison theater. I actually don't know what it's for. I usually say yes to everything without even knowing the details. And, uh, and I know it's four, it's four, four tribute bands are playing though. I think it's an REM band, a green day band. I think smashing pumpkins. And then we're doing a Pearl jam set last. And it's, uh, it's about seven to 11 at the Madison theater, uh, in Kentucky. And, um, we'll probably be doing about 10 songs. I think that's what everybody's probably doing. Cool. Uh, do, do all the guys in your band, are they guys from Cincinnati or are they guys from, from, from different parts of the country? In this band, I, I kind of have two bands. One, one is these are all Cincinnati guys. These are guys that I started playing with in 2006 when I got traded from the Red Sox. And I just put out that cover album called Covering the Bases. And um, that was put out uh, by Warner Brothers. And they were asking me if I still wanted to play some music. And so I said, yeah, I would love to. So they put this band together for me. We've been playing ever since. Um, you know, you know, when, 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 when you think about me, I've always wondered this because, um, it, it, for those of us that weren't good enough at music, for those of us that weren't good enough to, to, to be a major league baseball pitcher, I'm sure you've been asked this question before, but, but I, I find it an interesting question. Do do you get more of the, the rush and the adrenaline and all of those things? When you're up there on a stage and you're playing a huge event out in spring training, just announced a few days ago, I think Eddie Vedder is going to be out there uh, right when spring training gets started, if I'm not mistaken, this coming March or February. Do you get more of, a, of all of those things from being on the mound, pitching in a major league game, or being up on the stage? It used to be I was more nervous on the stage for sure. And part of that is due to the fact that, you know, when you're pitching in a major league arena, you most of the time you don't feel like you're pitching for the fans. You feel like you're pitching for yourself and for your teammates, right? You're pitching for the organization and the fans are kind of a secondary um, thing in like an outer ring of that. And if, and hopefully they appreciate your performance and that you do well for them as well, but it's not the primary goal. Musically, you feel like people bought a ticket to hear the music. And if you fail them, you know, there's nothing to hide behind. It's like, you know, um, you feel like you just they didn't get their money's worth. And so baseball-wise, if I got my butt kicked at the stadium, you know, let's say by the Pirates on any given day, I'd feel like I let myself down, I let the team down, but I wouldn't necessarily feel like I let the fans, let the fans down because 
they were there for the entertainment and, and it's kind of in sports, it's win, lose or draw, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. But musically, you don't feel like you should go up on the stage and just bomb it. And so I used to be much more nervous musically, but these days I've played a lot more shows and played with a band and you get comfortable up there and you feel like there's really nothing that can go so wrong that people would really notice. So it's, it's been pretty comfortable the last couple of years. So when you're cruising around and you got the uh, the ear pods in and, and, and you're listening to music, what are the two or three bands that you find yourself, and maybe it's not limited to two or three, but if you were limited to two or three bands that you had to listen to on a regular basis, what bands would they be? Yeah, if I was on a deserted island and I could only take three three uh, bands with me, I think it would it would definitely be Pearl Jam. It would probably be the Beatles, and then it'd probably be the Lumineers. I find, I find that those three bands I could listen to over and over and over again. There's much more music out there that I enjoy, but those never seem to get old. I could play them 24/7 in the background of my life, and and they feel like uh, you know I don't get tired of it. Let's go to the background of your life a little bit. Um, talked about your dad Gus, your mom Judy. You're born down in uh, in the Florida Keys uh, back in February of '77. Uh, your father, correct me if I'm wrong, originally from Cuba. Is that right? Yeah, my, my father was born in Cuba in, the, in 1950 and migrated to the Keys uh, when his, his parents decided that they were seeing the handwriting on the wall that they thought uh, that was when Batista ran the country before yep. Castro took over. And they actually, my grandfather actually was kind of in the clique and the crew, which was called the July 26th movement, kind of helping Castro take over the country because they thought he was going to make it a democracy and he didn't. So they wind up staying in the Keys. Okay. So you get down uh, the Keys, you're born there, and then you move to a town, Brooksville, Florida, uh, where you go to Hernando High School and you're a great athlete there. You're playing basketball, you're pitching in baseball, the whole nine yards. You've got college baseball scholarship offers, that kind of thing. I want to backtrack a second though. W when you do move, um, what was, what was life like in the Arroyo house on a day-to-day -day basis? What was it like growing up in Florida? Uh, for the most part, you know, I, I had a bit of a, a strange upbringing. You know, we lived on three and a half acres. Uh, when we moved from the Keys, we had this property that had these beautiful oak trees with the, with the Spanish moss hanging down. Uh, and you know, it was cow fields. Basically we're, you're not living in Florida where you're on the coast. You're not living near the ocean anymore as we were in the Keys. And you know, we always had a weight room in my house. My father was in this culture where he had been lifting weights with his friends for a long time. And this was like serious, you know, they'd come home from work and these guys were, they were benching somewhere between 400 and 500 pounds. They were squatting between six and 700 pounds and the same thing on the deadlift. And so he saw me as a kid who could play catch as a five and six year old in a way that, that he, I had never been taught. And he just saw athleticism that was, you know, above and beyond the average kid. And so he thought I'll put him in the weight room and make him a little stronger, at least get him a free education in college. So in my house, it was kind of wake up, have a good breakfast, go to school, come home, get a little snack. We'd go down and do our baseball thing, which was playing, stretching, warming up, playing catch, probably throwing a bullpen to a tire that was cemented onto a bucket, uh, you know, taking some ground balls, hitting in a batting cage, and then getting in the weight room and doing 45 minutes to an hour of a workout, go inside, take a shower, do your homework, eat some dinner and go to sleep and do it all over again. I read where, and you talked about the weightlifting thing, um, I, I read where, and with the Cuban background, um, although Castro wasn't in power yet, um, your dad was, was one of those guys, and correct me, Bronson, if I'm wrong here, 
um, the, the Russians and the East Germans and all these kinds of guys were doing weightlifting a little bit different than maybe some of the people were doing at that time in the United States, and that that's the kind of stuff you were doing. Is that accurate? Or am I wrong on that? Yeah, not, not so much in the lifts that we were doing, but the dedication to the craft at a young age. You would hear about Russian athletes just being – you know, bred from the time they were three and four years old, whether they were an Olympic wrestler or if they were, you know, a snatcher or a clean and jerk guy, whatever, you know, you, you just got them started a little bit earlier. And my father really bought into that philosophy. I can remember many times as a kid being seven and eight years old and people walking up to my father and saying, oh, we hear that your son's, you know, squatting, you know, 200 pounds at age six. And, and they would say, that's going to stun his growth. You're crazy. I don't think you should be doing these things. And he just was a little bit more ahead of his time. He was taking me to the acupuncturist. He was taking me to the chiropractor. I was getting full body massages as a kid. You know, he treated me like an athlete and he just he just saw that that was the way that you could achieve anything in life, which was kind of like to put one foot in front of the other and really pay attention to the details. Other people were, had not really caught up to that yet. And so he looked like a bit of a quack for a while, but as time has gone on, it's proven that, you know, he was kind of on the right track and put me in a place that, gave me the ability to play, you know, 15 years in the big leagues. Otherwise, it would have never happened. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you, uh, you, you have a chance to go to college on a scholarship, play baseball, great basketball player, all those kinds of things. Um, but you get drafted in the third round by the Pirates. Um, I'm assuming you weren't a hard, hard thrower. But I don't know what the importance in the mid-90s was like as it is now to go draft a hard, hard thrower. Would you be drafted in the third round today with the stuff that you had then compared to what it seems like they're only looking for now? Probably not. You know, I mean, I, I think it would have taken a very, very special scout, which I feel like the guy who drafted me, his name is Scott Lovecamp. He's still with the Yankees um, working with their pitching, you know, in the entire organization. And I feel like he was special enough to be aware of my feel of the ability to change arm angles, to change tempos, you know, the wit, the, the craftiness I had between my ears to beat hitters. You know, at a very young age, I was doing a lot of these things. Most scouts probably wouldn't have leaned on that so heavy and drafted me in the third round these days because I was throwing, in high school, I was throwing probably 86 to 88, and on a good day, I would touch 90. In my prime, let's say 2006, I was probably throwing you know, 87 to 92. And most days I was still living in that 86 to 88 range. So I never really was a hard thrower, but I always had the ability to throw my secondary pitches for strikes, right? And when you can do that at age 18, a lot of times you then don't walk a lot of guys in the big league level, right? Command seems to be something that is built into the machine um, early on. And they're starting to realize that now, but back in 1995, that wasn't so much aware on the table. You know, they thought they could teach every everyone everything from the time you were drafted on. And so, I think I would have been drafted, but it would have been probably later in the draft. I probably would have had a more of an uphill battle trying to get to the big leagues, throwing under 90 miles an hour most of the time. But I still always feel like the cream rises to the top. You find a way to get it done if you're a winner. And I feel like I could have always competed at the big league level. All right, so you, you get in the Pirates organization. Uh, you're there working your way up to the big leagues. What do you remember about your major league debut? Oh man, I remember a lot. It was, uh, you know, first, first I remember I was in, I was in Colorado Springs. Uh, our, our manager at the time in AAA was Trent Jewett. He had got sent up in mid season from being a AAA manager to the big leagues to coach third base. The pirates had fired the first and third base coach. And so 
the hitting coach had actually taken over the the manager's job there in AAA. We're playing in Colorado Springs. And uh, he calls me into the office and, and, he, and he says, I got two things. I got one bad news and I got some good news. Which one you want first? And I said, uh, I'll take the bad news. He said, the bad news is you're not pitching today. And this was Richie Hebner, a legendary yeah. Pirates player. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and kind, of, kind of a guy who could be irritated very easily, right? He was always on edge. He loved me, but, but it's what we call in the game a red ass, right? A guy who right, can right. be... You didn't say one thing and he's, and he's pissed off. So, you know, I wasn't sure what I was getting from him. He said, the bad news is you're not pitching today. He said, the good news is you're going to pitch on the against the Braves on Wednesday. And uh, so it was, you know, that was the realization of that moment, all that, all those childhood days in the weight room that was coming to fruition. And um, so I get, I get to Pittsburgh. I remember it was a, a rainy day. There was no batting practice. I walked into the stadium having no idea that you weren't supposed to wear a suit to home games. And I walked in with my, my one cheap suit I had and guys got a kick out of that and were kind of laughing at me as I walked in. And um, and I remember sitting on the bench that very first day, uh, actually pregame, I was getting dressed and I was putting on some spikes. And a friend of mine, Jimmy Anderson, who I would played with in the, in the minor leagues a lot, uh, he said, what are you doing putting on those spikes? And I said, uh, oh, I've been pinch hitting, pinch running in AAA a lot. So I I'm always used to putting them on. And he, and he said, man, ain't nobody gonna pinch hit in the big <laughs> leagues here. He said, put your tennis shoes on and man, enjoy yourself. So we get out to the bench. I'm sitting there in Three Rivers Stadium, right? I haven't been in a big league ballpark like that, you know, especially where you couldn't see out the back of the stadium. All minor league ballparks, you can see out into the back. But just, just having that, those seats there changed the landscape. The AstroTurf was different. You felt like you were in a different place. I'm looking across the field. I see Greg Maddox. I see John Smoltz. I see Tom Glavin. You know, I'm seeing these guys that were absolute idols of mine as a kid. And uh, I'm just enjoying the game. And in the third inning, I hear Arroyo. And I say, yeah. And they say, we want you to hit. And I said, I've got tennis shoes on. And they said, don't worry about it. It's good dirt in there. We need you to pinch hit. So I'm literally find myself on the on-deck circle with no contacts in my eyes, half blurry vision with a pair of tennis shoes on, about to make my major league debut as a hitter. You got to be kidding me. You don't have contacts in? These guys are throwing 90 miles an hour. I mean, the tennis shoes, okay, but you got no contacts in? Yeah, I had no contacts in. You know, my eyes since high school had been like 20, 25, 20, 30. So you could get away with normal life, not wearing them. Um, but on the field, it was very difficult to, you know, to be really good without those contacts in. So it was doable, but it was hazy for sure. And I got up there against a guy, luckily I knew well, named Bruce Chen. We had played against each other in the minor leagues for a long time. He was with the Atlanta Braves all those years. And he wasn't a hard thrower. And I kind of knew his repertoire. So it, you know, it made me feel comfortable enough, but still making your major league debut, kind of sliding around on the dirt in some tennis shoes without being able to see the ball crystal clear was, was a bit odd. All right, what about the first game now, though, you get a chance to pitch in? So the next night I get a chance to pitch in. I don't remember a ton about the game. I can remember the feeling of the game. You know, I know I, know I got a no decision. I know I think I went five innings, gave four runs, if I remember correctly. But it was it was an uncomfortable feeling. It was... You know, I'd been pitching in the minor leagues for a long time, very loose, very free and easy, pitching off the top of my head, pitching backwards, you know, just really playing a chess match with hitters. And I get to the big league level and the Pirates, you know, they kind of took that away from me. They were kind of like, hey, Jason Kendall is an all-star. He's been here for a few years. Why don't you just go with what he wants you to throw? And they really didn't want me to shake him off a whole lot. And, and it was also something people don't realize the subtleties of what it's like to be comfortable out on the field. You know, I'm pitching on a mound that I had never been on. I'm inside a stadium now that feels a little different. I'm wearing a uniform that's much tighter 
than I'm used to. I'm at the big league level and they give me a uniform that's more snug in the pants. I'm used to wearing this very baggy kind of hand-me-down uniform from years and years in AAA that feels almost like a pair of pajamas and you're very comfortable. And so there's, there's, there's these subtleties that you don't realize can bother you out there. And, you know, I felt like I was in a straight jacket kind of throwing uphill into the wind the whole night. You know, you couldn't really get on the hitters. You didn't feel like you could finish people. And um, by the end of that night, I kind of knew I was in a different place and I knew it was going to take some time to get comfortable. You're there a couple of years, and then um, you, you you eventually uh, get claimed on waivers by the Boston Red Sox. Before, before we get to the Red Sox, as a very young man, and I love picking brains of guys where this has happened to. I mean, you know, the, the game's littered with guys who are uh, number one picks and everything just kind of falls into place. When you get claimed on waivers or the team that drafted you puts you on waivers, um, do you start wondering if you got it to make it or did you never lose that confidence? At that time, I, I had never lost the confidence up to that point. You know, had had it happened a second time with the Boston Red Sox and I would have kind of like lingered in AAA and gotten claimed off waivers a second time, I think some of that doubt would have crept in. But you know, what I had observed in the eight years that I was with the Pirates was that, you know, I was a winner at the minor leagues. I was, I had, had like 80 wins. I think I have 84 to this day, but at that time I probably had close to 80 wins in the minor leagues. You know, I was 40 games over 500. I knew I was out pitching guys who were drafted higher than me that were, you know, maybe top prospects in the organization where I, I wasn't valued in the same way because I wasn't a hard thrower. But, but everybody, you know, when you're inside a locker room, you can't fake it, right? People know who the real deal is. They know who guys who 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 can can muster it up in those, you know, in those tough times when you got second and third and nobody out. The guys who take care of their body, the guys that work hard in the weight room, the guys that aren't lazy, right? That their word means something. All these things kind of permeate your character in the game. And I was a guy who I knew people in inside of the room I was in could feel that I was here, I was serious and that I wasn't going anywhere. And so when the Pirates let me go, I was a little surprised for sure because I had had so much success at the minor league level. I thought I was knocking on the door of being in that rotation for a long time. And, you know, they just, did, they just didn't quite at the big league level see my value that everyone else had seen at the minor leagues. And so they let me go on, on waivers and I got to the Red Sox. I wasn't really sure what I was going to get, but I quickly realized that every organization functioned very differently. And um, I, at that time, I hadn't even thought about the fact that I wasn't going to play in the big leagues for a decade. I mean, it was it just wasn't on my radar at all. Uh, so you get to Boston uh, in 04. Uh, you're in middle relief to start. You work your way into the rotation. You, you've been asked about this a ton of times and, and about when you hit Alex Rodriguez uh, of the Yankees in July of that year. Um, I... I don't know where the Red Sox were that year. The rivalry, whether teams are good or bad or both, or one's good, the other one's bad, it doesn't matter. It's such a heated rivalry. Um, but was that moment not that you planned to hit Alex Rodriguez, but did that moment become almost a galvanizing type of moment for that Boston Red Sox team? Yeah, I you know – People credit that with kind of like, you know, launching of the awakening of the Red Sox to, to coming back and being down three games to none in that series and winning that World Series. And people really point at that. And, you know, it felt galvanizing at the time. But, you know, we wouldn't have had to fight those guys to, to, to feel like we were galvanized. You know, I think just Alex 
purely coming to that team. You know, if, if you if you know a bit of history, kind of of the Billy Bean story and 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 um, where Alex came from, you know, he wanted to be a Red Sox, and the union wouldn't really allow it because they were gonna have to take some money off the table in his contract. So he wind up being a Yankee, kind of as a second choice. And, you know, we had been battling those guys since 03. Aaron Boone hits the home run in game seven, and I'm warming up in the bullpen that year and, and really devastated us. We were up five games. I mean, we were up five to one with five outs left to go in the game with Pedro Martinez on the mound. And so this thing has really been building for a while. And then you infuse Alex into that lineup, an already great team. You know, it just the guy who Alex was who could kind of rub people the wrong way over his career with a bit of cockiness and brashness and how good he was, um, you know, it – it just it just left the fire turned the fire up even more in 04. And so when I hit him that day, you know, and him and Jason Veritek go at it. I mean, Veritek was what really was the captain of that ball club in every sense of the word. And um, for those two giants to kind of go at it, it definitely galvanized that team. I can remember being in the clubhouse after winning that game when Bill Miller hits a home run um, on Mariano Rivera and kind of brings us back from the dead there. And Theo Epstein was in the locker room. All the guys who had been kicked out of the game were in the locker room. And people were celebrating almost like we won a playoff game. And from then on, you know, things started turning in our direction. So it was um, – it, it definitely felt like it was something. Well, it, it really turned in your direction. And and I'm not sure – maybe you're not even able to do it. You're an eloquent guy, but I don't know. But you, you had been around there long enough, only a couple of years, to know the whole vibe of Red Sox baseball. Uh, you know, look, I, I had a chance to broadcast Major League Baseball for over 30 years, and, and it wasn't until I had a few days off during the season back in you know, 07, 08, 09, something like that, and my wife and I went up to Maine for a few days, and, and we're there, and, and I mean starting at 6 o'clock, man, in Maine. This isn't in Boston. This is in Maine. Everybody and his brother is locked into watching the Boston Red Sox on some random night in you know June or July or August, whatever it is. Is there any way to put into words what that season culminating in finally winning the World Series, what that was like to be in Boston that summer? Yeah, it, you know, I, I, I've often tried to tell stories that can, can make even other players understand because even when I came to Cincinnati and any place I played afterwards, people would always ask me, even veteran guys of the game, they would say, is it really that much different to play in New England? And from my experience, it absolutely was. And, you know, I can remember being in the playoffs before we went to the World Series. There, was, I was probably, you know, I would say I was the 15th most popular guy on that team, right? I mean, you had Johnny Damon, you had... Um, you know, Manny Ramirez, David Ortiz, Derek Lowe. I mean, Tim Wakefield, these guys, you know, Tim Wakefield wins 200 games. Derek Lowe wins 175. I'm still the last man on the totem pole behind Pedro Schilling and these guys. And I won 148 plus 84 in the minor leagues, you know, and they, they totally outshined my career. So I felt like the water boy a lot of times on that team. And I could go anywhere in New England. And I mean anywhere. I could go to a truck stop in northern Vermont. And people would come up to you absolutely freaking out, wanting to take a picture with you and shaking, shaking while they were taking a picture with you. This is going to the hospital and having the nurse not be able to draw your blood. And she says to you, you know, the last time this happened to me, I couldn't get the needle in someone's arm. It was Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> right? Like Stuff like that. And um, I can't imagine what it would be like to be Pedro Martinez or Johnny Damon at that time. And so, you know, the, the couple of things that I like to say about after we won the World Series was, First of all, the cemeteries were full the next day. 
people were going to the gravestones of their parents and their yeah. grandparents and yeah. reading newspaper articles to them. That's how much it meant to that city. And the other thing was that nobody ever would come up to me and say, congratulations, you guys won the World Series. They would say, thank you. Thank you for my family. Thank you for bringing a peace of mind to the people who are alive and the people that are dead. And it was very profound. I felt the love from there. And it was part of the reason why I was so heartbroken to be traded to the Cincinnati Reds at the time, because I felt the passion in the people in New England. I hadn't felt that anywhere else in the game. All right, so let's skip ahead to that. You know, the, the next year, you have your best year. You win 14 games. You pitch over 200 innings for the first time. You've got it going on. You sign this three-year contract to stay in Boston. You've said yourself it was a quote-unquote hometown discount for all the reasons uh, that you're talking about right now. And then all of a sudden, you find out you're getting traded to Cincinnati. What did you think when you heard – where were you when you were told that? And, and what went through your mind not only sitting there hearing it, but then maybe when you got in your car to drive away uh, or, or, or just spend time alone thinking about how did this just happen? Yeah, it was a very odd day that's very, very vivid in my mind. You know, it was, it was nearing the end of spring training – and I was feeling good about where I was at. You know, I had a couple of good outings and a couple of mediocre ones in spring. But, I, you know, I, w I knew I was cemented on the club at that time. I had already established myself as a major league player. And so I wasn't worried about, um, you know, my, my performances so much. It was about trying to get healthy and making sure that you were strong enough to start the season and not be hurt. And so I was pitching against the Orioles that day. I remember I had a buddy named Joe Mastin in town. His sister was there. We were having some lunch afterwards under this big tent right outside the stadium. And I'd finished that covering the bases record. And there was this there was this part in the song Everlong by the Foo Fighters that you couldn't really understand what Dave Grohl was mumbling in the background. And so we had Stephen King, the writer, the legendary writer, yeah. listen to the record and ask him if he would do a spoken word part and write a part for it. And he said, let me listen to the record. And if I think it's good music, I'll do it. And so he said he signed on for it. And so he had done this part and we had never met in person. We had talked on the phone and Stephen walked by and he, he shook my hand and we had a great conversation that day. And I remember I left the ballpark just on a high. I had a good outing, you know, the season's about to start and I was headed back to my hometown of Brooksville. I'm driving three hours from Fort Myers up to my house and I'm thinking about what I need for the season. I'm gonna pack my stuff, I'm gonna get it loaded and we're heading to Boston here to start the season. And I'm at my house and I was talking with one of my childhood buddies on the phone and Theo Epstein clicked in on the second line. And I saw his name and on the drive up, I had somebody who had called me and said, hey, there's there's whispers in the air that you might be traded for a guy named William O'Pena. But I had been I had been in those type of conversations for such a long time. I never took them seriously. Right. I just signed an undervalued deal for three years. I think Boston loves me. I'm the youngest guy in the rotation. I gave him the most quality starts the year before. It's like it didn't make sense to me. And sure enough, Theo clicks over and he says, I say, Hello? And he, and he says, hey, Bronson. He said, I, I got something I don't really want to tell you. And I said, you traded me for Willie Mopena. And he said, yeah. And it was a super short conversation. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll see you at the ballpark tomorrow. And I hung up because I was so agitated. You know, I felt like I had, it was the first time in my life that I felt a bit of betrayal because when I signed that deal, I feel was not there at the time. He had left the organization for a bit and I was dealing with Jed Hoyer and Ben Sherrington as co general managers of the club. And they assured me that I was not going to be traded or that there was no plans to trade me anytime soon. And so it had only been four or five weeks since I'd signed that deal. And I was, I was really just heartbroken by it. Okay. So you go to Cincinnati 
this is a team that had been really down. Um, and, 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 and to be honest, I, maybe you totally disagree. I, I just thought the whole vibe in the clubhouse, because I came shortly thereafter, uh, and, and I just, to me, it looked like a lazy clubhouse. I'm not asking you to say that. It lacked intensity. It lacked fire. And here you had left the place that had all of those things. When you come to the Reds, right out of the gate, your first year, you go to the All-Star game. You throw over 240 innings that year. Um, what was different? Was anything different about Bronson Arroyo as a pitcher, as a man, during that first season with Cincinnati? Yeah, you know, being battle-tested in the American League East, pitching on such uh, a large stage all the time, not only in the playoffs against the Yankees and, and, and against St. Louis in the World Series, but but from 03, from being in that playoff um, series against the Yankees there, you know, we had a, a grind of a series against Oakland in the first round in 03 that we barely escaped with Derek Lowe closing that game out yep. there on, on that, that, uh, that front I did center. that game. I did that game for Fox. I remember it well. Yeah. And, you know, th those couple of years really made me feel like I was playing on another level. It made you know that you could play at the highest level, get comfortable, and get the job done. And so when I get traded over to Cincinnati, I don't know much about the National League, but I do know at the time, but I do know that I'm, I've got the nine-hole hitter is now going to be a pitcher. I don't think the lineups are as strong as the American League East. And I'm coming off of, you know – pitching in places that that made me feel like, you know, this is as good as it's ever going to get. Plus, physically, I was 27, 28 years old. It was right in my prime. I, I had figured out my repertoire of pitches. I was throwing a bit harder than I probably had ever had in my career. I could get up to 90, 91, 92 if I needed to a little more often. And, um, you know, I just got off to a good start. The city embraced me a bit. I could tell that there was a, a lack of a lack of fire around the place. I could I could feel it in the city, but you saw people coming alive. Feel you know I can remember one time I was at a place called Jillian's that doesn't exist anymore here in Cincinnati, and I was at a urinal and there was a guy next to me and I had pitched about three or four times and there was a guy next to me looking at the the bathroom attendant and he was saying like Hey, this kid Arroyo is amazing, man. He's lighting a fire in the city, not knowing I was standing right next to him um, at the urinal next to him. And, and you know you could feel that around town a little bit that something was changing a little bit and I. I wasn't to totally aware of it, but but um, I, I did feel like I was kind of skating downhill. It was one of those times when you caught a streak in your career where you felt unbeatable for a while. And, um, you know, it wasn't a lot different about me. It was mostly between my ears and the confidence level that I had to be pitching at the big league level at that time. But, but, but Bronson, it had to feel like, and, and again, I, I'm saying this, not you, but it had to feel like, and maybe I'm totally wrong, it had to feel like after you walk out of Boston and you come to Cincinnati, it's like you've gone from the big leagues to the minor leagues at that point in time, at least as far as uh, fandom is concerned, as far as passion, as far as um, um, the, the, the level of the team, the expectations of the team. There had to be – maybe I'm wrong. There, there had to be some kind of letdown there besides the betrayal part you talked about. But I'm talking about physically putting on a major league uniform in Cincinnati compared to what you were putting on just months before in Boston. Absolutely. There was. I mean, and I can tell you the subtle things that people, you know, might not realize. But when I first walked into the Reds locker room and realized that they didn't have any breakfast, any food, they didn't have a kitchen, we didn't have a chef, we didn't have a masseuse, 
right? You didn't have an acupuncturist, right? There was a lot of amenities that we had in Boston um, in a time when a lot of teams didn't have that, that we, that we were, we were lacking in Cincinnati. You know, I, I remember that very first day I walked into the locker room. There was no one in there except for Aaron Harang, Kent Merker, and Ken Griffey Jr. And everybody came over to say hi to me. I remember when I walked in the door, Kent Merker screamed out, our karaoke team just got a little bit better. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Ken Griffey came over and said hi, and their beat writers were there. And I really didn't know Aaron Harang much. Um, you know, we pitched against each other the year before, but, you know, I, I, he was young in his career. And, I, you know, I, I wasn't paying attention to the National League much. And so um, I realized he was the number one on this, on this staff. But I walked into to Jerry Naren's office as the manager, and he had been with the Red Sox just a couple of years earlier with me. And so I sat down and he said, Bronson, I know you're disappointed to be here. He said, I'm disappointed to be here. And because he had known where we had come from. And so, you know, I, I realized that there, there were some changes here. You know, the ballpark wasn't as nice in Sarasota. It, need, it needed an update, right? It was everything felt like it needed an update. But there was there was one guy on the staff, uh, the strength coach, Matt Krause, that I had been with for many years in the minor leagues. And I did not know he was the big league strength coach until the day I walked in there. And he made me feel very comfortable. He made me feel at home. He made me feel like the program that I was bringing from the Red Sox, I could continue with that and they weren't going to change me too much. And and that comfort level just coming from him made it that much easier to kind of get in that uniform and kind of push away some of that petty stuff and just see if we could win ball games. Slowly but surely, roster starts to turn over. You start bringing in some guys that look like they have a chance to be really good, headlined, of course, by Joey Votto. Jay Bruce comes along. Uh, and now you get to 2010. Uh, and, and there's certainly a vibe about the team that feels like this team can win. Uh, that night when Jay Bruce hits the home run to send the Reds into the postseason for the first time in seemingly forever, uh, I know it wasn't a sellout crowd that night, but it was a great crowd that night. Uh, it may not be on par necessarily, certainly not on par with winning a World Series playing in Boston, but that had to be one really cool moment for you and a bunch of guys that you, you sort of saw come together over a number of years after you arrived. Absolutely. You know, when I got there in 06, like you said, there was a different landscape there, right? We had Richard Aurelia playing shortstop and third base as a utility guy. We had Scott Hatterberg at first base. You know, Ryan Friel was on the club. You still had Ken Griffey Jr. You, your, your starting catcher was supposed to be Jason LaRue, who got hurt, and David Ross kind of took over that role with me at the same time. But it was a totally different ball club than we had in 2010. And the old guard was there. And, and what you talked about with a little bit of a lack of intensity. And, and um, you know, I, I would say that was kind of Adam Dunn and Ken Griffey Jr.'s team at the time. And those guys, I, I felt like, you know, were used to having a good offense and terrible pitching. And they knew they probably weren't going to make the playoffs. And there was this feeling in the locker room of kind of like go along to get along and you know, we'll come in fourth place and, and we'll do it again next year and we'll do the best we can. But, but you know, maybe we're not going anywhere. And, and by the time, you know, kind of that team slowly started to disintegrate because they were of age and because of a few trades. And you started hearing in the pipeline about this guy named Johnny Cueto. People are still talking about Homer Bailey, but they're saying, hey, we got a guy named Cueto. He's even better, right? And then we get Mike Leake and... And, you know, you're hearing Joey Votto and Jay Bruce, and th th there's this there's this buzz coming in the minor leagues that I hadn't heard in my pirate days really ever. 
of this group of guys that's coming in that we think is going to be pretty good. And then you infuse Dusty Baker in there as a manager who really can kind of um, make you feel like he's the commander of this ship and he's going to make it go. And so by 2010, when Jay hits that home run, it felt like a different team. It felt like a different space. It felt like we were ready to take off and do something special in the game. During that postseason, you get no hit in the first game by the late Roy Halladay. You pitch great uh, in, in your start, but the team gets swept, and, and on you go. 11 was a disappointment, but now 2012 comes along. Um, I thought, you tell me if you agree or disagree, um, I thought that Reds team was the best team in the National League that year. Before we get to the playoffs, did you think going into the playoffs – that this was a team you had played on a World Series champion already. Did you think this was a team built to win the whole thing? You know, it's 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 hard to say that sometimes because you're not ever inside other teams' locker rooms and you don't really know exactly how gritty they are, right? You can only observe that from the outside. But from observing our team from the inside, I felt like we had a team that was really close to winning a World Series at the time. I felt like the pitching staff probably lacked that real true number one guy at the time and i also felt like we had a lineup that was a little bit too much swing and miss and we could get really hot at times but what i had observed in boston was the way that we won those games was because of guys like bill miller who i knew could put the ball in play against the best closer in the game right and in cincinnati it felt like that was the best team we'd had and i thought we had a chance to win the world series but if I was being honest about exactly, you know, betting my life on something, I felt like we were missing just a pinch of something, right? And I, it didn't mean that we couldn't do it because we, we could have, but I felt like it would have been solidified had we had one guy maybe playing in the outfield who hit 320 every year that you knew could put the ball in play that was a little harder to strike out. Because if you think about that lineup, you got Jay Bruce, who can be super hot, swing and miss. You got Drew Stubbs in center field, same thing right? You've got Brandon Phillips and Joey Votto on the right side of the field, and those are the grinders we're talking about. And, you know, behind the plate's kind of the same thing. You know, you've got, you've got guys who can make it happen at times, but it's a little bit this up and down, and you want to see something a little bit more flatlined. And I also felt like, honestly, myself, I had no business, you know, I don't have any business going up against Clayton Kershaw or Justin Verlander head-to-head -head in a World Series game. Like, those guys are probably going to beat me more times than I beat them. Although we could get it done, Johnny Cueto wasn't quite that ace yet, right? So I felt like there was just a pinch of something missing, but you were hoping that we had enough. You get to the postseason, and and look, you get bad luck right out of the gate. I mean, the first inning of the game. Cueto's hurt. Um, he was the number one guy. Um, you come out, pitch a great game. Seven shutout innings uh, in game two. You're ahead two games to none win both games in San Francisco, you come back to Cincinnati. You come back to Cincinnati, a place where the team had not lost three games in a row at home all year long. All you got to do is win one, best of five. Um, I remember, because uh, we couldn't televise, I, I remember sitting up in the booth, and I'll, I'll never forget just the picture in my mind of looking down at the Giants' dugout and seeing these guys jumping around, and Hunter Pence has got this huddle thing going on. I mean, you know, look, they're a team in desperation. They got nothing to lose. Um, when you're on the other side, I don't know if you saw that uh, or if you thought, good Lord, what the hell are those guys doing over there? It's amateur hour. It looks like a college team, blah, blah, blah. Do, do you remember seeing it? What did you think about it? 
because that started game three, if I remember right, in that Giants dugout. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we all, we all, not everyone, but we, we either heard about it or you got to see a little bit of it. And, you know, we knew Hunter from, from playing with the Astros, you know, played against him since he was a rookie. We knew he had big time talent, you know, kind of an unorthodox player, but you, he didn't really emerge as a personality on that club for those first few years. And by the time he gets over to San Francisco, he's now, you know, wearing his hair a little bit differently, right? He's, he's a guy who everyone knows wears his pants up to his knees right? And he's this old school gritty guy who plays hard and he knows how to get the job done. And he had, he had then blossomed in the game as a voice in that locker room. And guys like Buster Posey were great players, but they didn't have that same personality to bring people together. And so, you know, with him doing that at the time, I mean, I don't think we thought much of it. I mean, we felt like we're back home. We've got three games. We just need to win one of these. You know, if you remember in that, in that rotation, you know, Zito was kind of on the tail end of his career. He wasn't the same guy he was before. We didn't feel like they had Anybody in that in that rotation, even Bumgarner at the time, I had just beat him seven to nothing or nine to nothing, whatever it was, and we didn't fear him at that time. He didn't really take off to be the Madison Bumgarner that we know now until the next year. And so, you know, I don't think there was any, there was no panic on our part. And 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 part of that led us to start Mike Leak in that series because Johnny Cueto went out instead of going with myself on three days rest and Matt Latos on three days rest. And that is the one thing about that series that still sticks in my side to this day that I really wished we would have had the opportunity to not have Mike in the rotation because I didn't think he was ready that year. And you were close with Mike Leak, so it's not like you're sitting here taking some shot at some guy. I mean, he basically became your little brother uh, from a second he went right from being drafted at Arizona State to pitching in a big leagues. Absolutely. I took him under my wing. You know, I did everything I could to make him feel comfortable in that locker room. I love him to this day. You know, he's one of my favorite guys I've ever played with. He's quirky and he's different. And, you know, I like everything about him. But um, he just wasn't quite ready for that big stage yet in my mind. Not to say that he couldn't have got the job done, but I felt like we had a better chance with myself and Latos going on three days rest in those moments. And I had that conversation with Brian Price. And I remember because Johnny Johnny got hurt swinging the bat before game one. I was taking batting practice with Johnny on the field. And he said to me in Spanish, he said, he said in Spanish, I'm going to swing hard like this tonight, Papi. And he said, I'm going to swing duro. And he's hit the first three balls of our batting practice, really hard line drives to shortstop. And then he winced. And he said, oh, and he, he didn't say I have a problem, but I know what happened in his, he pulled an oblique. And when I went in the locker room and he was getting prepped for the game, I knew he was in trouble and I knew he probably wasn't going to make it through the game. But when we got back to Cincinnati, they pulled him off the playoff roster without allowing him to play catch. He went in the weight room and they did a couple of things with him where he was testing it. And he said he felt pretty good and they never allowed him to play long toss or play catch to see if he could, if he could still stay in um, on the roster and they pulled him off of it. So when they pulled him off of it, I was disappointed by that, first of all, because I thought they should have given him a chance to play catch. But then I had a, a conversation with Brian Price, and I said, why don't you go three days rest with myself and, and Matt Latos? And he said, I don't think it's time to panic. He said, we're going to go with what we uh, have done all year, and we're going to put Mike in, in, in the rotation. And um, I just felt like at the time that Mike did not quite have the confidence in his game to step on that stage and really get the job done. Now, the years after that, I would have taken Mike Leak all day. But at that time, I felt like he was just, you know, underneath that. I've all, I, I have often just sitting back and watching through 30 years of good teams, bad teams with the Cubs, the Diamondbacks, the Reds, 
uh, been on, been around to, to broadcast a, a team that you know, that won a World Series and a lot of crappy teams along the way here or there. I still maintain, and you just pointed out with Hunter Pence, I still maintain it's very important to have a guy who's not afraid to step out of the, 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 these lines we create in baseball, unlike football and basketball, that can step out and be a vocal leader. I felt like that 2012 team lacked that guy. You agree with that or disagree? Yeah, I totally do. You know, it's, you know, if of anybody who probably, you know, threw a team party or, you know, made some of these undercurrent things go on that team, it was, it was usually myself, right? I was the guy who was doing a lot of these things inside the Reds locker room, but it's very difficult to have a, a non-position player be the guy who's supposed to be the voice in a locker room, right? You you need the guy who's playing shortstop every day. You need the guy who's playing center field every day. And on that club, what you needed was Joey Votto to be the voice of that team or Scott Rowland, right? And both of those guys were great players, you know, and they were great teammates, but they weren't that vocal guy. They weren't that Johnny Gomes personality, right? They weren't that Ryan Dempster. They, they, they didn't have, um, you know, the... They weren't Pedro Martinez or the Kevin Millar, the guys who really stir the locker room, that Hunter Pence who who just, you know, can can be funny, can be witty, can can also be harsh on on teammates at times of need, right? And we, we, we did lack that a little bit. And, you know, when Ryan Ludwig got to that team from the St. Louis Cardinals, he said to me one day on the bench, I'll never forget this. I said, I said, what do you think, Ryan? I mean, you've been watching us for about a month now. We weren't playing well. And he said, I don't know how to explain it. But on the St. Louis Cardinals, it always felt like we had a hard stare. And he said, here in Cincinnati, it always feels a little lackadaisical. And that's what it always felt like in that locker room. Like we had a good team, but you were missing this, this, this one guy who was a spark plug to say like, no guys, we are, we are gonna be here, right? And we are gonna be here for the long haul. It always, it always felt like we needed uh, somebody a little bit more vocal uh, from a position player. You know, when, when you talk about the Cardinals, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, they had some great leaders, some young guys that were coming up at the time, especially the Yadier Molinas of the world and those kind of guys. But I think a lot of that started with their manager, Tony La Russa. He was a hard stare guy, whether it was midnight or whether it was, uh, you know, uh, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You'd walk in his office all the years that I'd, I'd do Fox games and say, how you doing? He'd look you in the eye. He says, I'll tell you in about six hours. And he wasn't being flippant about it. He was ready to go for the game that night, whether it was July or in the postseason. I always felt like Frazier uh, Bronson could have been that guy. Um, but I felt like, and, 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 and again, I, I could be totally off base, but, but, but just kind of observing, I felt like Frazier was ready to be that guy, but I thought there were some other guys, position players on that team, that they didn't want him to be that guy. Is that a stretch? Well, you know, if we're talking about 2012, you still got um, – You still got you know, Roland, but Frazier had played very well that year. And, and to this day, yeah. there's still a lot of debate. And, look, you can't fault Dusty Baker, Scott Roland, Scott Roland. I get it. But, I mean, right. Frazier was a big part of that team in helping it get to where it was. So whether it was 2012 or in subsequent years maybe is a better question. I felt like Frazier right. could have been that guy – but there were people around there, whoever it might be, uh, and we don't have to sit here and name names, but I just felt like that there were people that didn't want him to be that guy. Yeah, I could see that. You know, when Scott was there in 12, um, you know, Frazier was playing kind of a pl platoon, pluton, 
he's playing uh he's playing a role where he's not playing every single day he's play he's playing off the bench he's not an everyday player and so when you're not an everyday player it's very hard to be the guy who's who's leading the charge right if you're talking about years after that i would agree with you i think Frazier probably had the personality to do it but inside of of Fraser's personality is a lot of goofiness, right? He loves to be a jokester. And usually a, a guy on that team can be a jokester, but I could see where from the outside looking in, there might be some people who were a little bit leery of Todd in a way that may, maybe he joked around too much, right? Maybe he's not Maybe he's not the guy to, to like fly the ship. He's like a good secondary mm-hmm. guy, but he's not really the captain, right? And 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 um, part of that I just think was his personality and the way that he went about his business. And And like I said, in 12, when you had Scott there, you know, he hadn't permeated that lineup enough yet to really be the guy to kind of um, pull the train. You move on to the Diamondbacks. You sign as a free agent uh, in 2013. Um, and, and subsequently, you start to go through some injuries and things like that. Um, when a Major League Baseball player is injured, the easiest thing in the world for fans to do is sit around and, oh, they're paying this guy all that money. You, you know what I'm saying here, right? But when you're that guy, um, is there a feeling of just incredible isolation? You're not always traveling with a team. Uh, you're not always feeling comfortable maybe when you come in the clubhouse because everybody's kind of looking at you th- or you think people are looking at you and saying, oh, God, you know, paying all this guy all this money and he, and he can't play. It, does that happen to a player? Absolutely. You know, I, I've probably had the least amount of insecurities at least in the latter part of my career, of anybody who ever walked in a major league uniform, you know, I was very confident in what I brought to the table and who I was as a person, and 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 the value that I felt other people appreciated from me, you know. Um, and even then, it was the first time in my career that I wasn't traveling with the ball club to sit at home and watch your team be in San Francisco. I, I had gone from 1995 to 2014 without missing a game. I had started over 450 games in a row, if you count the minor leagues, and some bullpen time in there, and I had never been on the disabled list, right? It was, it was not in my, in my DNA to, to not be with the club. And so just merely not to be traveling on the road was eating me up inside for a while, you know? And then, like you said, let's say you're a younger guy who, who had some more insecurities, who wasn't as confident, hadn't, hadn't built a bulk of a career that I had already done in Cincinnati, you know, Sometimes, yeah, you walk past the general manager or the owner who had just, you know, signed on the dotted line to pay you all this money. There's no doubt that guys would want to walk the other direction, put their head down in shame. Um, You know, luckily for me, I had already been 19 and a half seasons and I knew what I had done every fifth day for such a long time, had built um, an idea of who Bronson Arroyo was um, that I, I didn't have to hide my head in that way, you know. But even then, I remember being on the treadmill with the owner of the Diamondbacks and he said, Bronson, when are you going to be back? I need you back out on the field. And he was kind of applying a little bit of pressure to me. And this was probably three months after I'd had Tommy John. So I wasn't nowhere near getting out on the field. And I was already 38 years old. And um, and I felt some sort of obligation to the organization, you know, to I, I just signed $23 million for two years. And I'd given them seven wins. And I was leading the team after 14 starts. And I went out there eight times with a tear in my shoulder and no ligament in my Tommy John. And they were trying to pull me out of the game. And I said, listen. I signed on the dotted line to pitch for you guys. I'm going to ride it till the very end. And I did. But, you know, after having those surgeries, I f- still felt very indebted to the organization that I wasn't giving them their money's worth. You get a chance to come back. Uh, y- you finish up with the Reds. And before we get to the, the big news uh, from, from last week about your election to the Reds Hall of Fame, 
you know, you, you made it cool. And I know it's a word it's, it's used all the time. And, you know, is this guy cool, that guy cool? You, you know, you, you're just a cool guy. And you made it cool to be a red. I've often wondered, you know, you're not one of those guys who's putting on this facade for other people, but in a much more limited role in my case, in my job, I found it hard sometimes to always be on, if you know what I'm saying. Okay. And what I mean by that, you go to dinner, uh, you, you go uh, to a town where you got some friends there that you haven't seen in a while and you're excited to catch up with them. And yes, they're friends, but maybe you got in at two in the morning the night before on a trip and the next day you got to be on. Was it ever hard to be on as much as people probably expected you to be? No, not for me. I mean, I, I could see other guys getting just totally ground down in life by whether it was going to a restaurant and people wanted to talk to you. You know, I remember playing in Boston and one of the reasons David Wells didn't want to be there is because he said, man, I've been a Yankee for a long time. And he said, this is insanity here in New England. I walk into a restaurant. He said, sometimes the whole place stands up and cheers. And sometimes they all look at me like I'm the devil because I got beat yesterday. Right. (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) that type, that type of pressure, you know, could drive some guys out of town or out of the game sometimes. But for me personally, you know, I had been in that weight room since I was a little kid with my father and been thinking about these things. And I also I also was somehow in my very young youth. I mean, this is seven and eight years old. I can remember my mother would be playing tennis in the Keys and I would go with her and I would hit a tennis ball against the wall for an hour, you know, but I'd be tired of it. And maybe I would observe, you know, an 80 year old lady sitting on a bench in the park and I would go sit next to her and I would coax the conversation out of her. And I, I always had this sense that um, when I left that, that interaction that she had a, a good time because I was asking her questions about her life and she was telling me these stories and she was also making me feel good in that moment. I figured that out at a really young age. And so for me to be out there and have to be on means that I'm like interacting with fans at a bar or at a restaurant or at, at the stadium or my teammates and having to pull the load for them. But I always observed that people didn't want to pull the load for someone else. They were a little selfish in that way. And for whatever reason, I just, popped out of the box thinking the opposite way. And I always loved being on, being out, interacting with fans in a way that a college kid could walk away from me and say, man, that guy just talked to me like he's known me my whole life. And I saw so many players blow people off that I purposely went in the other direction even harder, even though I was already made that way since I was a kid. And so for me, it was, it, it, it was easy and it still is easy to just deliver the goods to people, to do what you say you're going to do, to bring some energy to a conversation and let people suck off that energy because I just know life is hard and you see it everywhere. You know, people have problems with anxiety and depression and all those things still happen in big league locker rooms, even though these are young guys who have great families and are making a lot of money. But, you know, it can be hard at times and I just didn't have a hard time with it. So I just, I just enjoyed kind of giving that love out to the world. All right, last two questions. Tell me one thing about Bronson Arroyo that perhaps through the years you've seen a pattern where people think that Bronson Arroyo is X, fill in the blank, and he's nowhere close to being X. The one thing that permeated my whole career was that they they thought I was a partier, right? And I remember we were in Arizona. I was out with Ryan Ludwig at my favorite bar in, in, in the whole city right next to the hotel there. It was just, you just walk past the yep, steakhouse. I know what you're talking nice, about. I know what you're talking about. Yep. Nice little quiet spot. 
And we got back in my room that night and he said, Bronson, I told my wife that I wish I would have hung with you more this year. This was like late August. And she said, why would you want to hang with Bronson? He seems like a partier. And he said, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. The couple times I've been out with him, he's having a good time, but he's drinking water most of the time and he has one or two beers and he's totally in control. You know, like you, you think this guy's like out there, you know, out of control, chasing women and drinking a lot and he's not right. And, and what people got wrong about me was that I love humans. I love interacting with people. I love giving that, 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 that love and that conversation that I can have with people at a bar, drop my guard and be myself and have one Corona and then a bunch of waters. Cause I know I'm going to the ballpark the next day to get a good workout in. Right. And so people mistake me being out as being a partier. And it really wasn't the way, the way that I operated. That's fascinating. Um, and, and, and look, that you know, I've already had you more time than, than, than I had asked of you already, so I don't want to go into that. But I, I think that's something that down the road we can get into because when, when people think that something like that about you, um, it's funny because, you know, when you travel with a major league team, I, I remember being out with some guys uh, who were players uh, back in the days when I'd have a few beers with the players every now and again. And... And there might have been one or two of these guys that, that maybe they were doing some things that they shouldn't have been doing. And, and, and I wasn't comfortable being around it. But because you were around it, you're thrown in and you're lumped in. That happens for everybody in life. And I think it's safe to say with a guy like you, it's not a surprise to hear you say. Because uh, I, I saw you. You weren't out there partying in the whole nine yards. But people think, uh, he's got the long hair. He's single. He's in a band. He's a music guy. He's all these things. He looks like he might be a partier, and, and I think that's fantastic. You've had a chance on this show to share that with people because I think that's really important for people to know. Reds Hall of Fame. You get elected first year up. Um, I, you tell me, is this like one of the great moments in your professional career? Absolutely. You know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm honestly – you know, I lean a little bit like Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam who stood up there the first time they got a Grammy, and he said, I'm going to say something now. And I'm going to say for the whole band, it's typically me. He said, I don't think this means anything. He said, you can't, you can't really, you know, judge art. And I kind of lean that way. I'm a bit humble. I, I don't really love the accolades. But to think about a kid who was in the weight room at such a young age and threw that tennis ball against the wall, dreaming of pitching in a World Series or, or playing shortstop and doing a backflip like Ozzy Smith, you know, I had been dedicated to that craft for such a long time. And to see that come to fruition, um, not only through the minor leagues, into the major leagues, to win a World Series, to win a, a gold glove, um, to be an all-star for one time, and to now be inducted into a place with the oldest team in the game where guys like Pete Rose and Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan, um, you know, sit, is, is the culmination of my life's work. And if, if there is something worth holding a trophy up for, that's it to say hey man all this work i did my life's work if it if it's embodied here in this one trophy or this picture of my face um you know it, it means a lot it, it also you know when you think about your life when i think about my life you know part of the reason i play music is because i think there's a chance that a great 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 grandkid or a great 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 you know niece or nephew might pop in a cd and listen to bronson arroyo sing versus popping in a VCR tape and watch me pitch. I think that's a chance they'd listen to the music first, right? So part of leaving a legacy here on the planet, because we're all we're all gonna be nothing one day, right? I mean, a thousand years from now, some kids not gonna even know who Adolf Hitler is, 
right? And so the guys like Derek Jeter and the biggest names in the game at one time, you know, they're not going to exist anymore except for maybe in a statue in some museum. And to be inside the Reds Hall of Fame and have my my face on that wall um, alongside these other 90 great players that have that have been here and, and, and announcers like your father, you know, is something that makes me proud. It gives me goosebumps when I think about it, and that's hard to do for me. Bronson, we're so we're so happy for you, uh, so excited for you in the induction and the election, and uh, and we thank you for your time today, man. This has been awesome. I appreciate it, Tom. Man, I'm I'm glad to see you're doing a show like this because uh, I've I've always thought that you were uh, not only was your voice beautiful to listen to, but you go about your craft in the right way, man. And um, I enjoyed being on here with you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bronson Arroyo, kind enough to join us. We asked him to join us for 45 minutes. We ended up keeping him a lot longer than that. But I think we could have kept him. I think everybody agrees. I mean, we could have kept this guy on another two hours. Uh, it, that's the best. Uh, and, and my dad's been on this big interview. That's the big, best interview we've had so far. Because I agreed, and I didn't want to mean any disrespect to your dad and, and how good these last two weeks have been. But the interview that Bronson just gave and talking about the history of how he played with the Reds and some of those stories that he told, I was sitting here the entire time listening to that, just just enthralled with, with what he was saying and, and those stories and hearing his opinion on the lineups and all those little intricacies yep. and everything he talked about with the Reds. That was un – I hate throwing around unbelievable – but that was an incredible interview. Well, you know, the, the, the thing that struck me, and Casey, um, you know, well, you're not a baseball guy. W what were your thoughts about I'm, Bronson Arroyo? I mean, it was, it was really honestly very interesting to just hear all the different details of how he was feeling. Like, players don't really go into their feelings about their situation. The, the way he described the difference between New England and Cincinnati, um, things that, you know, fans kind of, you know, they, they, they've thought about the Cincinnati like this for years, how Bengals have been outdated, Reds have been outdated, all those sort of things. Um, the, the way the crowd in New England is when you see a player, how different it is to Cincinnati, how he felt so confident in himself from such a young age, yeah. from the minor leagues. I mean, like, that dude never – I couldn't imagine him being – that doing that interview while he was still playing. But literally throughout the entire interview, he never faltered. He had a opinion about something. He stood behind that opinion. He thought highly of himself and should have, obviously. Yep. Reds Hall of Famer, crying out loud. Um, yeah, it was just really interesting, especially – the tidbits about the lineups, just like you said, because p people want to know what happened in 2012 or what happened in 2010. Um, they want to know those little interesting details, like who the leadership was. Yep. Um, I mean, people can't uh, just to give an example. I mean, we can kind of infer about like the, just to show an example for the Bengals, Uzama and Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow. But you know, you wonder about the other guys in the locker room. Like, is Logan Wilson a, a guy that speaks? Is he is right. he a, a leader in that room? Yep. Or, you know, just things like that. And he was giving those details out. It was yep. really interesting. It was it was and, and, I, and I keep getting back to, and you guys aren't there yet. Good Lord willing, you want to be. I pray you are. And I sincerely mean that. I keep getting back to 
Uh, me being a dad, my kids almost out of the house, both of them in a year from now, and the impact. I mean, going all the way to, he kept going back to, whether it was, he, he's on waivers. He kept, and then he goes to Boston, and the following at Boston, and winning a World Series, and, and then moving on to the Reds, and, and the playoffs, and then the injuries, and, and now the, the, the election to the Reds Hall of Fame. He always continued to hearken back on the way he was raised. And you cannot, it is impossible. Everyone makes mistakes as a parent. You make them every single day. But it is impossible to try and describe, and I think he just did it better than maybe anybody I've ever interviewed, of the impact you make as a parent and how important it is to be a good dad or a good mom uh, or a good older brother, older sister. He kept coming back to that. Great stuff. We appreciate Bronson Arroyo's uh, time today and insight. All right, do we have a cherry on top? Well, what do we got going on today? Yeah, we actually have two huge stories that broke during that interview. One, okay, let's hear them. One is that Bill Self uh, self-imposed a four-game suspension for what happened back in 2017. Self-imposed? Se Kansas self-imposed a four-game suspension. So he'll miss the Duke game. But the other bigger news story is that Dan Snyder has hired Bank of America to sell the Washington Commanders. Wizards. How big wow. is that? That's, that's well, what he, he did not clarify if it is a majority or a minority stake, but by saying that in the interview, I, I, or uh, in the statement, he did not say that either way. I, I wouldn't be shocked. If, if, he, if he's going to Bank of America, um, you're selling the whole thing. Because yeah. he's got enough friends of his around with lots of money that he could just have a private conversation with and say, hey, do you want to buy X stake, X, you know, whatever yeah. it might be, however they figure out the ownership group, percentage, shares, whatever. It's not a public company. But, but if he's going to Bank of America to lead this thing, he's looking to sell the whole thing. Yep. Uh, wow, two big stories. Okay, so that's our cherry on top. Uh, we actually have one other, one other thing that's a little lighter. Okay. <laughs> oh, you. Where is oh, Ohio yeah. University in the college football playoff <laughs> rankings? Number one. Number one. I mean, where are they? They're first in the MAC. Number one in your hearts. The Ohio University Bobcats, founded in 1804. Oldest college west of the Allegheny Mountains in the United States of America. And yet, they're not on any list with Clemson? Of course they are. They're in front of Clemson. They're in front of Ohio State. Georgia, Michigan, Atlanta, Alabama be damned. Ohio University. Where men are men. All right. Um, fellas, thank you very much. Tomorrow we're doing our picks because I'm gone Friday. But we are starting officially now, right? Yep. Boxed lunch. The guys are ready to go. Trace Fowler, Reed Mouse. Fellas, what do you got going on today before we throw it full time to you? Well, I apologize for, for delaying the inevitable. I know that, that you were really passionate about wanting last week not to pro no, we're not promoting this thing if it's not happening. That's right. I got a little got a little sick, got under the weather. That's right. You're better now. Um better now. Good feeling good. Feeling 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 like I'm uh back on my feet, if you will. And uh yeah, looking forward to doing this. Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. Yeah. It was, a, it was a big hole with you gone in the office. Let me there tell you. was. I don't know about was, that. There was a major uh, presence just lost. No <laughs> doubt about it. No doubt. It's great yeah. to have you back. Um, what, 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 what big one or two topics you guys are covering today before I just pass you the basketball? 
even though Bill's self-suspended, so he can watch well, me I, pass it to Troy. I don't know when Casey's going to throw up the uh, throw up the. J-bar. I don't know what you'd call J-bar. it, the skin, J-bar, yeah. whatever it may be. Well, you better Maybe do it, it now. I, go to the I was going to do it but, when we go to break. All right. Fair enough. Going to break. But we got, we got a whole host of things. One that we're going to do when you get back uh, from the break is me and Reed decided that our first topic every day is going to be grading your show. Good. We'll do that when we get back, and I got to go right now. See you in a minute. <laughs>